You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the Film Podcast. Well, coming up over the next few weeks, we're going to be featuring some of the 2022 Sundance-selected films. And we're going to start today with a film called Blood. The synopsis of the film is after the death of her husband, a young woman travels to Japan, where she finds solace in an old friend, but when his comforting turns to affection, she realises she must give herself permission before she can fall in love again. The director of the film is Bradley Rust Gray, who I welcome now into the film podcast. Uh, G'day Brad, good to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And congratulations for your film, Getting Into Sundance. Not the first time I understand that you've been at Sundance. You've got to go all the way back to 2000, 22 years ago, with a short film. Yeah, that was my thesis project at uh, USC. I did a short film called Hitch. That was a long, long time ago. And I work with my wife, So Young Kim. I've produced four of her films and three of them played uh, at Sundance as well. So tell me a little bit about Sundance, because unfortunately, like the year before, it is virtual. It wouldn't have been virtual, of course, 22 years ago. You would have actually got to go to Sundance. Big difference this time around. Yeah, big difference. I mean, I mean, my film was on 16 millimeter the first time also, and the projectors were really um, sketchy, for lack of a better word. The, <laughs> the film in front of mine split down the middle. And so, you know, all the filmmakers were A, excited to be there, and B, terrified that, that your film would get destroyed in the process. I mean, what's great about Sundance is the audience, and I think the audience that watched it online is the same audience. In a good way, I mean, more people could see it, people that couldn't afford to go to Sundance or could now see the film. So, you know, there's a silver lining to having it online as well. And you've directed, written and produced the film. What was the hardest element out of those three things, do you think, to help realise the project? Oh, that's a really interesting question. The writing process is really difficult. It's like you're making a recipe and you haven't even gone to the grocery store and picked up the ingredients. So it's like, I, I don't even know if they're going to have tomatoes. Or or if you go there and you find something else that's ripe and, and fresh and wonderful, you, you, want, you want to get that and kind of react to the... I think of the casting as sort of like the food you pick up at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And the script is just, a, a, you know, the list of items that you take to the store to figure out what it is you need. And once you've cast, then, then the script can be changed and adjusted in the same way you might change your recipe once you get your ingredients back home. I find it the most frustrating, the script writing. Well, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, what's your process in terms of script writing? I'm always curious to ask, particularly a director, how they go about putting pen to page. I like to write something that feels a little bit like the finished film. I like to write dialogue that feels as if you're in a room with somebody and that they're actually just saying what they would say to each other at that time. And then, you know, you piece together the narrative elements you need in order to tell the story. Both my wife and I try to write scenes that can be moved around and so that when you are editing, which is probably our favorite part of the process, you're allowed to sort of like create an emotional story out of different things that, that are allowed to happen. So the script was a framework and, and, and sometimes there's dialogue that I would kind of generally like for them to say. And, and sometimes there's expositional pieces where they definitely have to say things. You know, at the last minute, right before I left to go to Japan, my wife reread the script and she was like, oh, you should add more joy. So that was sort of a challenge of like, 
coming up with scenes that that would do that. And and for me, that came from Futaba, the little girl. And so, for example, there's a scene where uh, I this, in the script it says they push each other on the swings. And, and so that, that's just a sort of action, you know, it's just a sort of situation. And I know that that would be a sort of joyous experience. Cause I, you know, at that point I knew the kid we were going to get like anything we would do with a little girl would sort of like create that emotional moment of joy because she's just so full of life. So it's a combination of sort of setting up expositional moments and narrative moments that you need. And then also allowing space to, to have spontaneous things, but they're still in the script and they're going to generally go in this area, but there's an idea that you can move them later. It sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I noticed that you're one of the editors for the film, so you've written it, and I wonder whether you're writing some of these scenes with that very thought of, I don't want to lock myself off too much with this scene. If I want to move this scene around in the editing, I want to leave it a little bit open. For sure, for sure. When I was in school, I had a, a teacher named Bill Hogsey, and he edited, um, he was primarily a documentary filmmaker, but he had worked with Cassavetes, he's worked with Orson Welles. He edited the film Hoop Dreams, which is an amazing documentary, all built out of scenes. And he really taught me how you can, uh, you can take a scene, which is in one direction, and change it in the editing, but also the importance of, you know, allowing a scene to be its own piece, and then later deciding where it might go in the story. And so I'd say he was a big influence on, on that concept of like thinking of the editing, you know, when you're writing. Did you set out when writing the piece, did you set out for this sort of character study with your protagonist and her relatable story arc? Because she almost draws the viewer in as a friend of the protagonist watching her every move, almost like a fly on the wall, closely observing her decision making. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. Thank you. I, the uh, Yes, the story was definitely Chloe's journey, and it had always been set up that we're just going to follow this one character. I like just one person's journey in, in a story and being with them and watching them. And I, I think when you sit with this, with a character for a long time, you just have this intimacy uh, with them, and and like you said, you're you're. It's sort of like you're a friend, and then you 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 know, as as films work, you sort of become that person. I think when you watch a film, and you sort of the sense of empathy is something that's unique to cinema in the way that you can observe somebody up close and feel what they're feeling. Yeah, and I want to talk about how you worked with the actors on your film because it seems that a lot of these performances were freestyled, having a sense of spontaneity about them, as you've mentioned. So, you know, with that, it opens up different gateways that you can go down. It suggests, though, that you need patience for that, and it sounds like that's what you have. There were scenes that were set up that, that I thought, oh, this is going to be really fun. This is going to be funny or, or happy. Or, and, and in the middle of the scene, Carla was just emotionally in a totally different space. And something happened spontaneously with her as the character because she's just constantly acting, even though it's very relaxed and calm. The non-actors, I think, they would just do an action for cooking or whatever we're doing. And they were just themselves, which is fine. But to Carla's credit, she really fell into the world that they were in, but she's carrying this great loss and, and occasionally it comes through her character unexpectedly. And, and I think that's how it happens in real life. And she really brought that every day and we didn't know when it was going to happen. It was a wonderful experience to work with her. And you're working with Japanese cast. Do you actually speak a little bit of Japanese, do you? 
Uh, very little. I remember talking to Ben Chesel, the director of Guri Haji, uh, which was filmed in Tokyo, but he doesn't speak any Japanese either. And he said that he always knew what was being said, obviously, because it's on the page. And performance is performance in any language. But if you do understand the language, it is better. There's no, no doubt about that. But what about the translation from the English into the Japanese because there is this different language. So how did you approach that with your script? Through the process, I had a couple people translate the script to Japanese. So Ueno had read it in Japanese. There's two scenes in the film where they speak Japanese. And so those two scenes are in Japanese and I wrote those scenes out, like you said. So I had a general idea what they were saying, but they added pieces and the girl was a wonderful actress. And Ueno in Japanese was almost more confident to take the script and take the words that I had written and then add something to it that fit. And, you know, after the take, we'd talk about what they had said. And was your film shot at all during COVID? The first part we finished in uh, the fall of 2019. We didn't know at the time, obviously, but we had just left Japan right when COVID started. The second part of the film we shot in Iceland, it was definitely because of COVID that that was part of the reason we chose Iceland, because I had lived there before, so I knew friends that I could use in the movie. It was probably the only place that we could shoot at the time where you didn't have to have a mask because the country was pretty much COVID safe. You had to take several tests before you could even get into the country. And then you had to quarantine once you got there. But because they were so diligent with that, they were pretty COVID clean at that time. And hey, Brad, let's bring in your cinematographer, Eric Lynn. Hi, Eric. Uh, Welcome to the film podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, you've been a really busy DP working recently with Will Smith on Amend, the Fight for America. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the interviews that you shot. Now, I understand that they were not green screens because when I was having a look at this, they are so high, the, the screens that have been set up to tell you know this, uh, these different episodes, these stories. So talk us through, I'm sure that our filmmakers would be very curious as to how you actually shot that with those high screens. Yeah, we had like debated kind of the look of the interviews and we were sketching out a lot of different concepts about what it could be and, and what was best served by the experts who are essentially our storytellers. You know, we did the interviews first with the, the the historians and the academics and the writers first before we did the performances. So yeah, we were always kind of like trying to figure out what the best concept and platform was to kind of showcase the storytellers' words. You know, they're telling these incredible stories about Abraham Lincoln, about JFK, and we had like come up with conceptual stuff, playing with reflections and glass, but we also we kind of stripped it all down to kind of something very minimal. And we arrived at this idea of like this platform they were speaking on and wanting to show kind of like the artifice of it too, you know, shooting off the stage to show the soundstage behind them, trying to really lean into the theatricality of it. Sally Levy, who was the production designer for that portion of the shoot, we we were kind of like playing with the scale of like, what would the stage be? Because it's, you know, it's about like this monumentality, this kind of like historical thing. We wanted the platform itself to be kind of monumental. So we arrived at a dimension, you know, we had, we had like tested a bunch of different sizes, but we arrived at a dimension that we felt like gave us this kind of scale that kind of like could echo, you know, the idea of like history and, and, and how far reaching and how long this struggle has been for this idea of equality. And also this the scale, the larger scale of like this kind of platform gave us this kind of more epic feel in terms of like what uh, these storytellers were telling us. So yeah, we, we shot on the, the CBS stages here in New York for the interviews 
And it's like this very old soundstage where they have like almost 40 foot high ceilings. So we were able to get these like low angles and see just this vast, you know, vast space around them. So yeah, we hope we hope to kind of like showcase their words and kind of gave life to the stories they were going to tell us. Another thing that I noticed was the actors' performance. Quoting their dialogue from various people, they were just so on with their performance. People watching probably take that for granted, uh, but from a performance point of view, it was cleverly executed. And I'm curious as to what was happening behind the camera to get that level of performance to camera. Yeah, well, we were we were lucky with Kenny Leon was the director. He directs a lot of theater, but he also does a lot of television. We had these set pieces. They're called periactoys, <laughs> which is, like took me a long time to learn how to say, which is like comes from like Greek theater, where there are these um, three sided sculptures essentially, and each side is a different dimension, but allows you to, you know, depending on which side you show the camera or the audience. Um, you can create different kind of shapes or corners, essentially. And we had, I think we had a, a dozen of them. And so production designer had come up with a bunch of different arrangements of what they could be. And we had to like choose the one that kind of most fit the theme of that performance piece. So we try to use these, these sculptures in a metaphoric way to hopefully, you know, add weight to the performances, like dependent, you know, whoever they were trying to embody. We were working hard to try to give life to those, to those words and do them justice. Because, you know, some of it is like, you know, literally a Supreme Court justice reading a text from a, a decision, <laughs> and that can be very dry. No, I thought that that worked uh, really well. Now, Eric, let's uh, have a look at Brad's film. First thing is that you've got this very calm way with camera movement, something that I noticed straight away. It does have, at times, a little bit of a documentary feel to it, You've obviously worked out with Brad how to capture story with that stillness of the camera and the way that the camera is moving very minimally. Tell us a little bit about the approach and the way that you move the camera almost subtly at times to achieve what you captured. Yeah, Brad and I worked on his, I think it was the second feature called The Exploding Girl many years ago. And we kind of started this process of a documentary approach to capturing the unexpected. Brad's ideal is to like throw actors into kind of a real situation and have them, you know, create that moment. And part of that approach is to, you know, to have the machinery of filmmaking be further removed from the actual actors or there's some, and in which, you know, often involve non-actors. So we wanted to like be invisible so that we can capture it, you know, whatever is unfolding uh, in a truthful way uh, without imposing ourselves on it. And so we would often be on very long lenses, you know, far away. Like we never knew exactly what was ha- going to happen. So therefore we were always, you know, catching up to the, to the actors or catching up to the, the emotions. And we thought that was like an interesting tension, right? It's like, oh, they're walking over there. We don't know what's going to happen. But, but we also aren't going to try to anticipate it or, you know, get there before the, act- uh, the actor or the non-actor. We're going to let them take us there and then we're going to see what happens. And so, but all of our adjustments had to be very gentle. You know, we wanted the, the feeling of observation to be this gentle one that, that kind of, uh, you know, we're kind of like delicately eavesdropping on these actors. And I thought that the film really illustrated and was really a great example of how to film in a live location and, and put the camera, as you say, far enough on a long lens so that people can't see it. Or if they do see the camera, they don't realise it's really being pointed in their direction. That just all really played out. I mean, one of the examples is the playground scene with the father and daughter close to the jungle gym. 
and also close to the two actors talking. I mean, you can't act what that man is doing because it's real and it just adds something that you can't capture any other way. Yeah, Brad can speak to it more, but it's a very special way, I feel like, of capturing these dramatic moments in within the real world. And maybe we should bring Brad in just to talk about that right now. Brad, you did really well with the way that that all unfolded. Oh, thank you. Yeah. As Eric said, we, you know, we had practiced this sort of approach before. We were very influenced by uh, Ho Shao Shen. You know, we interpret how he might shoot a film. The camera being sort of like an objective narrator. And I think that that sort of affected the pace of the camera movement. And then, yeah, I really like shooting on location in a, in, a, in a place where the people that are in the frame don't really know they're there. You know, and then after we take the shot, we go and talk to them and get permission if they can, if they're okay being in the movie. But it's always so exciting to see people walking through the frame and blocking the image. And, and then, you know, are they going to clear in time? And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. It creates a, a certain sense of magic. As you said, you could only do by just letting the world take place in front of you. Also, the way that it can play out with a two-hander shot on a wide in a live location and just let the scene play out with the life of the street with people walking through the shot. Funny, it's like while we were shooting, whenever like a car pulled into frame and blocked the actors, I was like, oh yeah, Brad's going to love that. Even though like it's driving me crazy, like I have no idea where the actors are and I'm trying to like guess where they'll pop out from behind a car. But <laughs> once they got blocked, I'm like, oh, yep, we're, that's going to be a keeper. And if you shot coverage that would totally break the performance and the continuity, you would have something completely different in terms of capturing that scene, Brad. Yeah, I think we knew ahead of time which scenes we were going to cover and which scenes we were just going to get as a sort of single. I mean, looking back, it feels like we mostly tried to get singles. Sometimes we would do if uh, there was two people, um, there's a scene where he's playing a guitar for her and she's listening. And we knew if we floated between the two of them on a, you know, as a sort of floating single, we could edit that shot. You know, if we're outside on the street and they're a couple blocks away walking down the street, then we're not going to be able to edit that. And as you said, we're not going to be able to cover it either. So we would have to get it all in one take. It was a combination of, of finding the performance we were happy with and making sure nobody looks in the camera. And not that long ago, we spoke to the cinematographer who shot in Human Resources, uh, which is a French miniseries currently screening on Netflix. And he talked to me about the freedom of exactly that, of shooting with a camera crew on the fly in Paris. And a scene that they shot in a live street, and this is what he said. We do what we feel. I do it, I do it myself. Like when I feel I have to move, I feel I have to frame something, I do it. And I think that's, that's very important, that we are free to improvise, to change our minds, and that the crew follows us in, uh, into that. There is this wonderful tracking shot with Eric and his daughter walking along a street. It looks like the street isn't closed off, judging by some of the people across the other side of the street looking on. Was that the case? Because it just had this real energy that everything was alive in the shot. Yes, that's that's what that that's exactly that. The, the street wasn't blocked. We function like that most of the time, so we don't block street exactly for that reason. It's really difficult and um, also very time-consuming and expensive to organize proper life in the street. Yeah, it's just uh, ordinary people walking around, and we had just a few extras, and that's it. But the, most of it is like um, the real life. 
Yeah, you can't beat that real life. And I wonder, Eric, have you done a film extensively as this in terms of the way that you've captured performances in live situations? No, I would say not. Exploding Girl, I remember we did something similar, but it's definitely, yeah, uh, that film and this where we, we kind of let life unfold in front of us. You know, like New York, just like Tokyo, it's like you point, you know, you point the camera at any street corner and there's so much happening in front of you. And I always tell the story where, and Brad had mentioned it, people kept looking at the camera and we kind of discovered this thing about, I think it was like a, a week or two in. So we would, you know, we'd have these long shots where we would have them approaching camera and walking from like, you know, several blocks away. And inevitably people crossing a frame would find our camera. We would try to like be behind, you know, a phone pole, behind boxes, behind like trash cans. We try to be, you know, we try to hide the machinery of filmmaking as much as possible. But inevitably, people would be like crossing the street and then they would tag the lens and like they wouldn't just look at glance at the camera. They would like stare at it and, and it would ruin the take because we can't edit. Right. We have no coverage, so we can't edit it. Um, so we, we we made we figured out this this way where the um, the second AC Daisuke would stand next to the lens and stare at anybody that was going to cross our frame. Inevitably, anyone would like look towards the camera. They'd see Daisuke staring at them and they would look away. And so you see it in some of our shots where people are like about to glance at the camera and then they look away quickly. And that's because Daisuke is like standing right next to our lens, staring at them. And I'd be like talking to him the whole time. Like get that guy on the bike, get that guy walking across, you know, and then the rest of like the three or four weeks after that, we were able to shoot these wide shots, you know, on busy Tokyo streets and avoid a lot of uh, <laughs> issues of people staring at the camera. But it's, it was difficult to figure that out. Like you can't create that kind of life on the, on the street. But I would still imagine, even though you've got the Japanese that are looking at the camera, if this is in the US, it is completely different, right? Because it only takes one person to realise what's going on and the whole neighbourhood is in on it. Yes. <laughs> yes, I've had that happen to me. Yes, <laughs> for sure. And everybody on the podcast knows I'm such a fan of a long take. It Just in terms of preserving the continuity, if you can get it right... It just adds something which is magical to watch. And obviously this was a key decision that you and Brad sat down and decided, right, you know, how much coverage are we going to require for this piece? Almost this authenticity as a result of lack of coverage. Yeah, you know, it's something that me and Brad, yes, we talked a lot about in preparation even when we did cover something, it was always the idea of letting the situation live, you know, for as long as it could. Brad built it in the schedule where we had the time to discover things while we were shooting it. It was built into the conception of the approach. You know, we know we're going to capture the, the dance practice, but we don't know what that one special moment is. And we're going to have the time, though, to sit here and film it and repeat it and or see where it goes and hopes to capture that one thing that that will make us realize that we can move on. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear what Brad, you know, would want to say about that. So, Brad, you had 30 days, I think, was the schedule. And as Eric has said, you've obviously got enough time to sort of play around and, and look for moments. Yeah, that was the idea going in. We, we'd always, I think on Exploding Girl, we had 17 days and it, it <laughs> yeah. just felt tight. You know, I mean, we, we, we could still do similar things, but it was like the main pre-production goal was to keep the 30 days. So for example, we only hired a gaffer to work like maybe two days a week and we would work the schedule around that. And, and sort of pre-light a location and then, and then she would go and come back in a couple of days later. And so, so we would have the money to stretch it out for 30 days. But it was great because there was, I think on our fourth day, it rained. We knew we could go to Ueno's house for that. 
but we didn't really have scenes lined up for that. And we had Futaba come over. And so that whole sequence was just a day in the rain in the house. And because the story was set up that this girl was just visiting her friend, she's doing work in Japan and she comes over and visits her friend. He's the only guy she really knows there. So anything that we would do spontaneously also fit narratively. And, and anything that was a sort of, could be an intimate moment. Something I think when you're in a rain, you know, when it's raining inside and there's, and there's three people, you're going to stay inside. So because we had that time and space, we were allowed to find things, as, as we keep saying. Or Eric and I like shooting at dusk. So yeah. on certain days, we'd be on location. And then, you know, if the sun started to go down, we'd say, let's go outside for an hour. And it's great, great for the actors, too. We would just shoot something because the light was great. <laughs> and then we got some great scenes that way. Some you just throw away. Part of that is, you know, similar to what uh, the DP on human, resource, human Resources said. It's because we had kind of a small crew. We were very nimble. You know, we could, we could pop out. We could grab this thing. We, could, we saw a store or something that we liked. We could ask them if we could shoot there. But we were such a small footprint that we weren't like this imposing shoot. The more imposing the shoot, the less opportunity <laughs> to have a street you know, live. I mean, you're just never going to get there. The other thing, Eric, I wanted to talk about was the simplicity of the way that you moved the camera slowly around in the car on the actors and in the front view showing the landscape outside. And I loved the shot where you were doing a slow panning shot with the actors in the landscape, panning about 180 degrees, ending on the left-hand side with that huge mountain which was totally unexpected. It was a great surprise for the viewer. I wish I could take credit for that. <laughs> um, but that's, yeah, that portions that were shot in Iceland were shot by Guy Godfrey. You know, Brad had worked with, with before and who I know well and uh, talked to about the style. But um, yeah, Guy Godfrey got that amazing shot out in Iceland. I could but, say something, though, yeah. to give you credit. I mean, you did set up, because when we were doing driving shots, I was like, what if we just shoot in the production van? Because Eric and I have done driving shots before and ends up when I'm on his lap or he's sitting on my lap because <laughs> we don't really use process cars. And so I was like, let's just use the van. Nobody's going to know. It's only like a foot higher than a car. And once we got the camera set up, again, because we shoot with sort of longer lenses, we're like, oh, this is going to work. And, and we had an even longer lens than I think we would have. Yeah. And we, you know, we set up on, I think, on you know, one side or the other and uh, sort of a French over. And Eric's like, hey, I can, I can pan. I think we were driving and you were like, right. hey, check, check this out. Watch, watch, watch. I can, I, I can pan from one character to the other. And so you set the concept of that shot up. So when we went to Iceland, I said, hey, guy, check this out. If you put the camera here, I think you're going to be able to pan. And he's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. And then, you know, he was like, give me a little time. And then he's like, check this out. We can go like 180 <laughs> degrees. Went further. And so, you know, we, we all had to like kind of duck down when he would pan around. But it was, it started from that that, you know, what, what Eric had sort of discovered in the car. And again, it wasn't really intended. It was just, we had the shot. And then he, because we were on the tripod, it was like, let's see what happens. And it has a really un- interesting feel and, and, and it, it fit the style of the film so well. It was a little bit of an accidental discovery. So it was a complete accident because there's obviously a timing issue here because you have to be at that moment where you can pan to the left, get the mountain as you're in that moment of the drive. Yeah, I mean, the thing about shooting in Iceland was, uh, you know, as I just said, I like shooting at dusk and and magic hour. And and we shot that shot probably like 1030, almost 11 o'clock at night. We had about a two hour, we were at my friend's farm in Iceland. And uh, we had about a two hour drive back to Reykjavik. 
and we drove along the coast and it's like, we, I have two hours of usable footage because it's the light was insane. It just kept flaring and it was amazing. And there's mountains every, every time you turn a corner, there's a new mountain. But that's what's really nice about shooting in that way, too, is the actors are in the car. They're really driving the car and they're really just sort of spending time together and they can say whatever they wanted to. And it's supposed to feel like a husband and wife, you know, driving in the countryside. And, uh, you know, you give the actors that space and then we would just pan the camera and see what we got. No, that was uh, that was fantastic. Uh, and Eric, I guess you got to see Iceland. You went to Japan. Was there anywhere else that you went on the shoot? Guy, I'm very jealous. Guy was the one who got to go to Iceland. I only got to go to Japan. <sighs> but although I had gone to Iceland to shoot something with Brad and his wife, so before, so I, I did. Unfortunately, I did know what I was missing, and I was very jealous of that fact. But I, unfortunately, yeah, I was on another prepping another film, so I wasn't able to to join the Iceland portion of the shoot. But no, that's the only places. Oh wait, Brad shot some sections in Munich, right? The yeah, Brad? yeah. Yeah, we used a little Sony. That? Well, yeah. we used a little Sony camera. And, you know, I talked to Eric about it, and I had a Voigtlander, which is at a 0.95, 40-millimeter. Yeah, mm-hmm. Before we shot the movie, there was a... Ueno was doing a concert, the, uh, the real uh, actor, in Munich. And Carla lived close to there. And so I talked to the investor and said, can I fly out and, and have the actors meet before we shoot? Because they're supposed to be old friends, and this, this would be really impactful. And she agreed. And then we got this little Sony. I talked to Eric. I'm like, should I take some camera? And, and we talked about this little Sony camera. There's very few shots. I think there's a shot out of the window of an airplane and, and a couple other pieces that, that would match. But when you compare it to the Aerie, it's, it's so much more rewarding to use that heavier camera in the tripod and keep the techniques that we used for the rest of the film. Well, Eric, great to talk to you, and uh, well done. You've certainly captured some fantastic imagery on the film, and I look forward to seeing what comes next for you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you. And I heard at one point that you you were chasing old ladies around the subway in Tokyo trying to cast them in your film. Tell us that story. Yeah. We had, my wife and I have cast with non-actors a lot. Sometimes, you know, we, we shot a film in Korea. We went to probably 11 elementary schools and we would just watch kids. And for some reason, we really got into this idea of just going somewhere and looking at people and seeing who had an interesting mannerism or something. So Mitchie, my assistant, and I would get on the subway and look for, we needed a grandmother in the movie. And, and, we, and we would look for old ladies and, um, yeah, we found this one and she was just, I was like, oh, she's amazing. She just had this amazing air. And so we, we started sort of stalking her, which was not really the best way to do something. You're trying to find a moment where you naturally would walk up to her. Anyway, yeah, so we kind of chased a few people around Japan. And then one day we were shooting in the countryside. We were looking for somebody that we could, Carla could interview, the character Chloe could interview in the, in the film because she interviews different people. So we just wanted real people for her to interview. But we all fell asleep in the van. And when we woke up, we had sort of like entered these rice paddies. So, I, you know, I was like, whoever we see next, we'll just stop because we were running out of time. And uh, there was this little old woman by the side of the road in front of her garden. So we pulled over and asked her if she could do the scene in the movie, and she agreed. She's just wonderful. And then, you know, later we needed a grandmother who was her same age, and I asked if we could get in touch with her again and use her. And so that's how it happened that we found this, uh, the actual grandmother in the film. It's just so exciting when you find somebody that's just authentic and real and can give so much to the movie. 
Brad, to finish up, we've got a lot of indie filmmakers listening to the podcast right now. How about offering some advice to any indie filmmaker who is trying to get their feature film made who just cannot find the money to make it? I think that we're at a really fortunate place where you can get an extremely high-quality camera. My wife and I, when we made our first films, we just sort of paid for them ourselves. And it's, I think we're still, I think now you could do for the same amount of money, you could have a much higher quality film. I would say this sounds ridiculous, but if you find a way to sort of self-fund the thing you're doing, it just becomes so much more exciting. And and it's like jumping out of an airplane and you start to learn so much about filmmaking process and everything. It's possible. You can just start to do that. You'll end up having to make choices about what you're going to do. and, And that's that's your voice. The choices you make when you're shooting a movie is the voice of the filmmaker. It doesn't cost anything to make a decision. Hey Brad, great to catch up. All the very best and congratulations again for getting into Sundance 2022. Thanks for coming on to the film podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.